continuing in our series through the book of Matthew here. So please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be reading verses 18 to 35. Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 35. I'm reading here from the New King James. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshiped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly, a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. When Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all that land. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind man came to him. And Jesus said to him, said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in humility today wanting to have Jesus be among us and to bring his healing power. As we see these incredible stories of miracles, we declare before you that we similarly are needy. We desperately desire for us to experience afresh the kind of, of uh, fame and, and report that, that spread, about, spread about the land as Jesus uh, did these incredible deeds of power. And so we invite Jesus, we invite the Holy Spirit to be in this room as we gather around this text and share among ourselves and whisper among ourselves and dream about what it would be like to experience yet again Jesus' power. And so we invite, invite you here through your Son, through your Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're... We're going to need to review one last time the structure of Matthew 5 to 9. You can't really understand this passage if you don't understand the the context and how it's laid out. 
from a structural perspective. Okay, so I want to just do a little bit of review here, especially for those who missed earlier messages in the series, to make sure we're all on the same page because you'll see by the time we're done today, if you track with me, how powerful it is to understand this situated in the larger context of, of Matthew. Okay, so before we do that, Uh, I want to just keep your finger right where you just are and just flip back a couple pages to Matthew 4.23. Okay, and let's read this verse here, Matthew 4.23, just one verse. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Okay, so what does that verse remind you of? Matthew 4.23, it should be... It should just light up based on what we just read. Yeah, exactly. So it's almost verbatim, not exactly, some small words here and there. It's almost the end of what we just read in Matthew 9, Matthew 9.35. By the way, there's an empty seat right here, the one that I was in. Steve, you can take that. Um, Oh, okay. So Matthew 4.23 and Matthew 8.35, or Matthew 9.35 rather, are nearly identical. Does everyone see that? I want you to see it with your own eyes because it's one thing for me to say it, but it's another thing for you to read it and see it. Everyone see it? Matthew 4.23, Matthew 9.35 are basically identical. Okay, and the name of that literary device is? Inclusio, right. And inclusio is how in the ancient world they didn't have chapters and verses and all those things that we added later on. We added that in the Middle Ages. And so the way that they marked off their texts was not with big numbers like we use, but it's with inclusios. They, they would put the same words to mark the beginning and the end of a section. Okay, so right before the Sermon on the Mount, we have that line about Jesus going around the cities and villages, teaching, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease. And right at the end of this, we see that. Okay, so that means that this is one big block of material. Okay, from Matthew 4.35 Sorry, Matthew 4, 23 to Matthew 9, 35 is one block of material. Matthew intends for us to read this as a whole, okay? Uh, I had mentioned this before that there's a name for the particular structure here. I know this is kind of a funny name, but... The side here is Matthew 5 to 7. The side here is Matthew 8 to 9. Does anyone remember? It's okay if you don't because it's, a, like I said, an odd name we don't use very much. There's a, a name for this two-paneled structure. Anybody remember that? Diptych. Diptych. Very good. So this time I actually... Is that you, Francesco? You said that? No, it wasn't you. It was a few of us. Okay. Well, good, good whoever said that. I actually printed out this time a diptych so we could pass it around. This is a real diptych from the Middle Ages. Um, this is a diptych here, and it shows kind of classic medieval art. So here you have the Virgin Mary holding baby Jesus. And here you have some woman, she's a member of royalty, who's venerating Mary and doing sort of typical Roman Catholic type veneration. So obviously this is not a practice that we endorse, but you can see here how there's a connection between the picture of Mary and the baby with this woman who's venerating Mary here on the right-hand side. And if you look, you'll see there's a hinge connecting it. Okay, so I'll pass this around for you to 
to look at here. So that's a real diptych. And as we mentioned before, on the left-hand side is the Sermon on the Mount. And I spent a lot of time, there's dozens of messages that I, I gave, Sermon on the Mount, going through the literary structure of the Sermon on the Mount. I won't repeat that here. But since we're here in Matthew 8 to 9, I want to repeat this structure as a reminder. There's 10, 10 miracle stories on this side here. So 10 miracle stories that are distributed in three groups of three. And we'll see today one of them is a double story. That's how we get to 10. So there's three groups of three. So the first group of three were healings. First one was a leper. Second one was the centurion's servant. And the third one was Peter's mother-in-law, a woman. Peter's mother-in-law. Okay, and these are all sort of unlikely characters here. You have someone who's ritually unclean, a Gentile. And women, women in general, were, were not as uh, regarded on the same plane as men. So you have, right after the Sermon on the Mount, these three stories of healing that go to them. And then after that story of three, we have an interlude on discipleship. And discipleship, and that was about the cost of discipleship. And there were those two stories that were told about the two people who balk when they look at the cost of following Jesus. And then we have another group of, of three. So that was the calming the storm. Then there was exercising the demons. Remember that man who has all the demons in him and the, they go into the pigs. So exorcism. And then there was healing of the paralytic. And really, the healing of the paralytic was about authority to forgive sins. So in fact, the first one is about authority over nature. The second one is authority over demons. And the third one is authority over sin or authority over forgiveness. So these three are are primarily about authority. That's a group, the next group of three. And then there was another interlude on discipleship that we looked at last time. I spoke last Sunday on this. And it's, it's a long message. I won't go through all of that again. But there was a very, if you missed that message, actually, it just went up online. I hope you can watch it. There's a lot in this next interlude on discipleship after that next group of three. And I'm just going to mention a little bit about that one. Uh, this was one of the six points that I had made in this talk. But one of the key verses here in this interlude on discipleship was where Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Remember that? That's kind of a key word here. And mercy for Jesus in context was about, what was it about in that context? Evangelism. Evangelism. It's about him eating with tax collectors and sinners. Remember, he's criticized for eating with tax collectors and sinners. And so mercy for in Jesus's mind is about outreach. It's about evangelism. It's about eating with sinners. And I've said this many times, but this, this panel over here is embodying the Sermon on the Mount. It's showing us what the Sermon on the Mount looks like. So you can think about this side over here 
as kingdom proclaimed, and this side is kingdom demonstrated. Also, I quoted one author who said, Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Move. And this, this shows us what he meant there. And so Jesus uses the term mercy very, on, very early on in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And so if you want to think of what Jesus meant when he uses that word mercy, the very next time that word emerges is in this side of the diptych. It's right in this section here where Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And it's about outreach. It's about identifying with sinners and eating with sinners. And so whenever you hear blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy, I want you to think of that. Picture Jesus doing that uh, about eating with tax collectors and sinners. And just point this out, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount especially is filled, filled with references. I'll even say it's dominated by the topic of evangelism. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers, peacemakers between man and God, man and man. And then he uses images like light of the world, salt of the earth, city on a hill. He wants us to be able to do these good works so that people will glorify the father in heaven. It is saturated in that kind of language. And I, I say this because, you know, I'll, for good reason, for very good reason, a lot of people in our circles will say like, ah, we don't like the way the modern churches have gone. They focus on Paul. They don't, they don't talk about Jesus and we should talk about the Sermon on the Mount. But it's very easy, even in the sermon. And so we basically, we complain about being selective. We're like, hey, don't be selective, right? Take the whole Bible, especially take Jesus' words. We can't be hypocritical and be selective with the Sermon on the Mount, right? And just slice that up and just say, oh, it's all, you know, divorce, marriage, and non-resistance. And those are good things, really good things. But that first part of the Sermon on the Mount is dominated with mercy, evangelism, light of the world, salt of the earth, etc. Okay. And, and we saw that the Pharisees, and we talked about the Pharisees last week, for them, salvation came by isolation. But for Jesus, he came to identify with sinners, salvation by identification, uh, identification with Jesus, his suffering and the lost. So it's a good question to ask us. And again, I talked about this last time, but if, if you were to critically evaluate your your calendar, the last month, the last year, w- would it be said of you that you spend time with sinners like Jesus did? We have to be very careful to avoid the bubble, right? That easy, it's so easy to fall into that isolationism that we see the Pharisees fall into where they just look down on sinners and they're not actually eating with them and not partaking with them. So I, I really want you to... to watch last week's message if you missed that. Like I said, it's up online. That's all I'm going to say about it. There was a lot more in this section about discipleship here that you'll have to go online. Okay, so now today we go to our final group of three miracles. So it's, it's these very carefully structured miracles here. And I'll just, I'll write them up now so we, we see them. And the first one is a pair. That's why it's, even though it's nine stories, it's ten miracle Stories. The first one is Jairus' daughter. It doesn't use the name Jairus there, but the parallel account in other Gospels say that. Slash the bleeding woman. Okay, so it's one story here that all three of the Synoptic Gospels always include together. It's always, it always rides together. So it's really, it's a singular story, and we'll see why in a little bit. 
but it, there's two different miracles that happen in there. So that's why there's nine stories, but yet ten miracle stories. That's the first one. Then there's two blind men. Sorry, this is so small. Two blind men. And then the final one is a man who is both deaf and demon-possessed. Demon-possessed. Okay. So I know this is hard to read. Sorry, I should have written bigger. But the first line says, Jairus' daughter and the bleeding woman... Then two blind men and the man who was deaf and demon-possessed. That's their final group of three. And interestingly, we're going to see in chapter 10 is Jesus is going to call his disciples. Okay, so it not, it's not just going to be an interlude now, but it's going to go into its own long extended speech on the calling of the disciples and commissioning the disciples. So it's this beautiful, beautiful literary structure here that Jesus demonstrates. Uh, I also want to point out that there's something about these last three where each of them is almost a double miracle, right? So the first one's easy to see it's a double miracle because there's Jairus' daughter and there's the bleeding woman. But then notice how there's two blind men and notice how this last person has two problems. He's deaf and he's demon-possessed. And so this last triad is almost this exclamation point on Jesus' power, uh, all of them are amazing. All the miracles are incredible, but this, this last triad is particularly impressive. Okay, so we're going to walk through this passage verse by verse, and I'm going to give you four points that I'll encourage you to write down and internalize. So starting in verse 18, in verse 18, we see this story of this man who, like I said, we know from other accounts that his name is Jairus. So just for shorthand, I'll call him Jairus. Uh, and it's while Jesus is speaking on the new wineskins and all the amazing teachings that he delivers there. And as he's giving these teachings, Jairus comes up to him. This man comes up and it's very interesting what he does. Actually, does anybody remember what we know about Jairus from other gospel accounts? It actually gives us a little bit more information about who he is. Yeah, very good. He's a ruler of the synagogue. So, so Jairus is, is actually a pretty impressive person here. He's a, he's, a, he's a big shot, right? He's a ruler of the synagogue. Okay, so even though he's a ruler of the synagogue, in verse 18, it says, Behold, a ruler came and worshipped him. Okay, that's how the New King James renders it. The word that is used here is proskuneo. I think the ESV uses knelt uh, there in its translation. It's the same word, and it's, you can render it either way. Uh, proskuneo is, is uh, if you look it up in BDAG, kind of the, the best Greek lexicon, it suggests the following, the following glosses. Fall down and worship, do obeisance to, prostrate oneself before, and do reverence to. So that's how the leading lexicon says to consider translating that word. Uh, it's a word that communicates like worship in, in heart and submitting and, and laying oneself down, but also a physical act, right? That's why the ESV has knelt. Um, and if you, this word is used a lot in the Bible, both in the Septuagint and in the New Testament, and it's often translated as kneel or fall down. Again, it encompasses all of that. So 
The fact that Jairus, this man here, who's such a prominent person, who's a ruler of the synagogue, comes down and prostrates himself or kneels before Jesus, it says something about his humility here, right? This is, this is a big deal to do. He, and he's doing this in public. He, Jesus is giving this speech here in front of John the Baptist's disciples and others. And here Jairus comes down in the middle of this speech and throws himself down before Jesus. And I will say that one of the tests for your humility or desperation to Jesus is your physical posture. When you worship or pray in public, it's easy to be, to be stiff or, or apathetic or, or cool. But the people who see Jesus really move are those who kneel, prostrate themselves, lift hands, cry out. In my experience, most people in our circles are kind of guarded and sort of reserved. Uh, what's that person going to think? What are they going to think? And th- there's not a lot of this proskuneo going on here. They aren't desperate. So my first point is that public displays of worship and desperation move Jesus to action. Public displays of worship and desperation move Jesus to action. Okay, so again, I want you to not read over these things quickly, right? There's, it's easy to do that, but, but what, what is it that, that moves Jesus to take time out of his schedule and go all the way to Jairus' house? It's that this is a person who's desperate, who's expressing that with the totality of his being, his, his heart, his body. He's, he's, he's serious here. Uh, I believe he's, he's doing this because he's both desperate as well as humble. And he also just loves his little girl. This is a, a man who has, a, we know from other accounts, this girl is 12 years old. It says that in Mark 5.42. It doesn't say that here, but uh, that is a, uh, I, I have a daughter who's almost 11. It'll be 11 in a couple of weeks. And it's hard not to, to be just endeared by your, your daughter who is, that, that age. Okay, so Jesus goes in response to this man's pleading. Now, so he's going there, right? And he's on the way to Jairus' house, moving over uh, in that direction. And along the way, a woman comes to Jesus who's been bleeding for 12 years. For 12 years. Okay, so as I mentioned, the synoptics always join these, tor- these two stories together. And I have to say, this is a favorite story of mine. So I, I, for four years, I did my residency and fellowship at a hospital in Boston. It was actually a combined program between two hospitals, but uh, the one hospital was Children's Hospital Boston, which is obviously a pediatric hospital. The second hospital is called Brigham and Women's Hospital, and Brigham and Women's Hospital is itself the merger of three hospitals. They merged in 1980, and uh, it was the merger of a hospital called Peter Bent Brigham Hospital, so that's the Brigham part. And then the women's hospital, okay, so, and there's a third one. So they all merged to form Brigham and Women's Hospital. And it's a, it's a big hospital. It's one of the biggest hospitals in America. Uh, just to give you a flavor here, just their research budget alone is more than $600 million a year. Okay, so this is like huge, massive hospital. Uh, when you walk into the Peter Brent Brigham section of the hospital, they, I don't know if they still have it, but it was there when I was a resident. They had... Um, the Nobel Prize uh, medal 
hanging there on display because the very first organ transplant in history was done there uh, by a guy named Joseph Murray. I actually got to meet him. Uh, so he won the Nobel Prize for that, I think, in 1989, something like that. And so they're very proud of that. First organ transplant, lots of amazing accomplishments, lots of Nobel laureates and all that. Well, there's a little hallway that, that isn't super well trafficked, but I used to walk by it. And I used to stop here and I, I, I would I'll pretty much always, even if I was busy, I would just stop and look at this. Because they had the original seal of the women's hospital on display there, which is now you don't see even anywhere. And it's hard even to find this online, but I have a copy of it for all of us. And I'm going to pass it around. And I used to stop and just smile. I would just stop and look at this and smile. So this was the original logo of the women's hospital. I'll pass it around because you probably can't see it here. But it's a picture of a woman who's grasping, it's actually Jesus, and it says, if I, may but, if I may but touch the hem of his garment, I shall be whole. That was the, that was the, the insignia of this, of this hospital. So I used to stop at that and think like, wow, what a great motivation to be a doctor, right? To be there and to help me make people whole in the spirit of what, what Jesus did. So favorite story of mine. It is, it is very easy for us to, to miss the significance of this woman's problem. We won't go back and look at this, but if you go and read in Leviticus 15, if, if you had a bleeding discharge, you were treated as unclean by the community, and you had to basically be set separate from everybody else, almost like a leper there. And so this poor woman who has had this problem for 12 years, and it says in other accounts in the gospel, she spent all her money on doctors who, who knows what they tried on her. I can just, I, I, my heart goes out to her. Even when I think about this, just utterly humiliated alone, an embarrassing problem to have. I mean, what a, what a terrible situation she would have been living in at the same time. You have to admire this woman because she has the, the courage, the gumption to think like, I'm going to push through this crowd and I'm going to get hold of Jesus's garment. And if I can just touch the hem of the garment, I'm going to be whole. I love this woman. And of course, we, we know Matthew usually tells things in a very abbreviated account. But we know from other accounts that when this happens, Jesus feels this power go out of him. And he, who touched me? None of that is here in Matthew's account. But but, and the disciples are like, Jesus, who touched you? You're like surrounded by all these people. But of course, what, what of course happened here in this account is that only one person was pressing into Jesus by faith, which was this woman. The other people were there physically touching Jesus, but there was only one who was going out and with desperation, with faith, with expectation, going to lay hold of Jesus' garment. I just, I love this woman. And, and of course, she, she approaches Jesus with this expectant faith, and she's healed. I'm, I'm so struck by verse 22. It says, but Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. Of course, a bunch of us looked at this in Greek in our Greek class on Tuesday. Tharasi thugater, hepistisu sesokense. Right? So Tharasi, again, some, some of you know, is like, Take courage. That's really the better translation here. Be a good cheer sounds too, I don't know, sounds too weak. It's take courage. So this is a woman who would have been kind of afraid, right? Because she's supposed to be isolated and outcast like a leper. And here she is in the middle of this crowd, surreptitiously 
moving towards Jesus, and Jesus is like, take courage, woman, take courage, and then calls her Thugacher, daughter, right? Love this, love this. And, and there's a couple of other striking points that I, I appreciate about this account. Look at Jesus's tact and modesty that he himself says. Notice he doesn't say, take courage, daughter, I have healed you. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, I've healed you. He could have said that because he did heal her. But he says, your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. And I also like that he, he doesn't say, he could have said, you're healed from this menstrual bleeding problem. Doesn't say that, right? He, he, says, he says, your faith has healed you. And he just leaves it at that. So this woman's she's, she's able to be discreet even in her, in her knowledge of, of what happened in that healing there. So Jesus commends her. He wants her to be, be treated with dignity and to be lifted up, right? If you can imagine, had he given too much details, that wouldn't have given her courage. That wouldn't have been something that she could have really been, been uh, able to lift her head high there. But Jesus gives just the right language here to, to lift her up. I like the way that one author puts it. He says, he also says, he gives credit to her faith because he wants her to know that with faith, she has Jesus's number. <laughs> I like that. Uh, with faith, she has Jesus's number. So that's Jesus's phone number right there. If you want it, it's faith. F-A-I-T-H. All right. So now what do we see is he finally makes it over to Jairus's house. And there's probably these professional mourners that are there and, you know, making a big uh, scene there to, sh- to show how sad everyone is. And then in verse 24, it's a very interesting statement that Jesus makes. He says, make room for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And when you read that, you're like, wait a minute, does, who's right here? Is she dead or is she sleeping? And it's kind of confusing, right? And you're like, ah, I don't know. Like, do they all get it wrong? Did she, did she, was she just really like actually still alive and they missed it or what? Uh, why does Jesus do this? Well, Historically, and basically everyone has done this from the early church to today, so there's actually good consensus on this. Uh, it'll be my second point here, which is that after Jesus comes, death is defeated and becomes like sleep. After Jesus comes, death is defeated and becomes like sleep. So my first point was public displays of worship and desperation move Jesus to action. Second point is that after Jesus comes, death is defeated and becomes like sleep. Okay, so... Why does Jesus say she's sleeping? Was she dead or not? It seems fairly clear from the account that she was actually dead. Uh, Jairus clearly thinks she was dead. And the crowd is like, she's dead. What, what are you talking about here? So she's dead. The uh, people knew what dead was back then. It's, it, wasn't, it wasn't difficult to, to figure that out. Her body was probably cold. Her heart certainly had stopped beating. But as I said, from the early church on, the answer to this question is that after Jesus comes, death is defeated and becomes a lot more like sleep. That death becomes something that is not to fear anymore, not to be feared anymore. It's no longer this ultimate state, and it's a lot more like sleeping. And hence, it becomes something not to dread. And it's very interesting. We won't read this account, but Paul does something similar when Eutychus falls out the window and it says, Luke says that he died. And then Paul goes down, he says, no, he's not dead. Same thing. And you're like, what is it? Luke, you just said he was dead. Paul's saying you're not, he's not dead. Like, what's going on here? 
Well, one of the, the hallmarks of Christian belief is that death is defeated in Jesus. I love the way that Matthew Henry puts it. He says, sleep is a short death and death is a long sleep. Um, that post-Jesus, people start to think about death much more as just sleeping. In Hebrews 2, it says, through death, he might destroy him. He is Jesus, might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Very interesting, isn't it? That so much of the world is in the grasp of the fear of death, right? I don't know how many of you would, would say that of yourself, that you have a fear of death. It's, it's normal to have that. It's part of being a human to have that fear of death. And, and so much of our world is, is running from that or, or cowering from that. But here Jesus calls death sleep. Okay, so, so then he, he, uh, he goes in and he dispels the crowd. And actually, let me just say one thing here. The, the New King James does a pretty good job translating that. It's, it uses the word, they ridiculed him in verse 24, right? Um, so it, in Greek, it's even a little more vivid. So it's kata and then yalao. So yalao is to laugh. Kata is down. So it's like they laugh down at him. I love that. Like, you know, like they're, they're like, you fool, ha ha ha. They're kind of laughing down at him. Again, ridicule is a good translation there. There's something that I think is even maybe more profound in that or more symbolic in that, which is that resurrection is is always derided by the world. It's a concept that, that has always been and will always be until Jesus comes, something that people think is ridiculous. They laugh at that and they think, what? Death, temporary, resurrection of the body, all things made new. Uh, so uh, same author I mentioned before says it this way, healing is not, for, for Jesus, healing is not a show. It is not even intended to be an advertisement or attraction. So Jesus asks unbelief to leave and brings faith only into the room. He doesn't want anybody else there in the room other than faith. And we know from other gospels, he takes in Peter, James, and John um, and the parents alone. But he gets, he gets all these ridiculers out of the room. He's not interested in what probably most of us would be thinking. I'd be thinking, man, I can like in an instant show you how you are the ones who are to be ridiculed. And I'm going to raise this girl right in front of you and I'm going to turn around and laugh at you, right? But Jesus doesn't do that. He puts him out of the room and he, he, he only wants these miracles to be exhibited to the faithful. It's very, very interesting. Very common theme in the Gospels. I mentioned to you before that so much of this, this part of the diptych reflects the teachings here, Kingdom Proclaimed, Kingdom Demonstrated. This is a great illustration of where Jesus says, do not put your pearls before swine, right? We, we, Jesus mentioned that in Matthew 7 here. And now he's showing us here what that looks like. He's not interested to like just have a show and entertain people or one-up people. Okay, so one final point on this story is that this is the very first resurrection miracle in the New Testament, 
It's the very first one. And Jesus only actually heals three people from, sorry, Jesus only raises three people from the dead. This girl here, the widow's son at Nain, that's in Luke, and then Lazarus. Uh, Those are the only three people that he raises from the dead. This is the very first. And I'm very struck by just the, the beautiful simplicity of how Jesus raises her from the dead. So there were actually resurrections in the Old Testament, most famously Elijah and Elisha raised up people from the dead. And I went back and we won't read it today, but I was going back and reading those accounts and Elijah has to pray. Elisha, man, he's like, it seems like he's panicked and he's like crying out to God and he's like, please heal this girl, you know, like raise this girl. And I love how it says when Jesus raises her from the dead, it says, but when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. Just the most beautiful, manner of fact, gallant language that is used here. Um, krateo is the word that's used here. It's an interesting word that if, if it takes an accusative, it's like kind of grasp or, or kind of a forceful. But if it's the genitive, it's more of a, a gentle uh, connotation that the word has. And here's the genitive form that's used here. So he just gently takes her by the hand and she, she arises. Okay, next we go to verse 27, the next story. So now we're on to our our second miracle in this triad. And it says that Jesus departed from there, from Jairus' house. Two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. Okay, so don't miss this. So it says two blind men followed him. Okay, blind followed. Okay, so like not an easy thing to do if you're a blind person. You're going to have to do that using your ears. Uh, I, was, I was at Sattler, I think it was a week or two ago. I was going in the first floor elevators up to our 17th floor. And there was a blind man in the, in the open area. And he had his stick and he was just, he was flailing. He could not figure out where the elevator doors were. And I felt so bad for him. And I did what... Any of us in the room would do. I came up to him and said, hey, can I help you? And I gave him my elbow and pressed the button, took him on the elevator and brought him to his floor. And he actually said he worked in the building. Uh, it was his regular routine, but he just got disoriented and wasn't able to open the elevators and find it there. Well, here, to picture the scene of two blind men who can't see, who are trying to follow Jesus, that would be really hard to do. This would be really hard to do. And notice the key part here, Jesus doesn't stop. He keeps going. Okay, he's not going to stop for a while longer here. So Jesus is making them grope, making them pursue him. It's kind of an interesting scene here, right? It's at first glance, maybe not the most compassionate way to treat two blind people. But as they're going, they're crying out, son of David, have mercy on us. And I want to point this out. This is the very first time that the title son of David has been applied by anyone to Jesus. And it comes here by, from two blind men. Matthew opens up in Matthew 1.1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Remember, that's verse one of Matthew. This is, it says, this is the genealogy of, of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. So that son of David has been lingering since verse one of Matthew. And the first time somebody seems to figure it out, is these, are these blind people who figure out 
that Jesus is the son of David. That's clearly, I think all of us recognize that, that's clearly a messianic title. 2 Samuel 7 has the promise that the son of, of David would be the Messiah, would, be, would reign forever. Uh, and there's a deep irony, isn't it? That it's blind people, <laughs> that blind people are the ones who first call out Jesus as the son of David. Okay, so, so then uh, it, it's very interesting. In verse 8, it says, when he had come into the house, and that's a very literal translation. That is how uh, the New King James and the ESV render it. The blind man came to him. Okay, so came into the house. What's, what's the house? Who, whose house? What is the house here, right? It's, a, it's an odd expression in English and in Greek. And the, 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 the classic understanding of this that I think most people have had, which is probably right, is that this is probably Jesus' house in Capernaum. So he's, we've talked about before how he's moved his headquarters from Nazareth to Capernaum. And he's probably come into his house there. But many writers over time have said that Matthew is probably intentionally being ambiguous in his language here. And saying that they're coming into the house there. Uh, what is the house? It's Jesus' house. What is the house? It is a picture of, what do we think this might be? I'm seeing people saying it under their, their breath. Kingdom. Yeah, the, the kingdom, the church, um, something like that, right? The house of God. They're coming into Jesus' house here. And for, for good reason, this is being taken as Jesus is calling these blind men to press in from their individual lives that they had into the house, into the church, into the kingdom here. And um, I think that's probably right. And so, so Jesus then, once they get into the house, he says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Then they said to him, yes, Lord. And notice Lord there. Kurios, master, kurie. Um, uh, so notice how they, they call him Lord. And then in verse 29, a very famous line here where Jesus says, according to your faith, let it be to you. Uh, the, that is um, a beautiful, beautiful expression that I, I personally prefer the King James on this, where it says, according to your faith, be it unto you. That's just a little more classic language there. Uh, and this line here, we, I could do a whole hour on just this line here, according to your faith, be it unto you. Uh, in those of you who have taken the evangelism class uh, know that when we talk, we go through one of our books, we, we refer to this, this is from Spurgeon. He refers to this as the law of the kingdom. Um, and I think that's right. This is the law of the kingdom, according to your faith, be it unto you. So there's a powerful line here. In fact, you might even say that this line summarizes all three of these stories, right? According to your faith, be it unto you. These are stories of people, men and women who have great faith, who, who are rewarded according to their faith. So uh, they have the faith to, to be healed. They understand amazingly that Jesus is the son of David and to be healed. And so they are. Okay, now it gets, it gets very interesting. Um, that's, that's obviously the apex of that account. But then Jesus says, or it's, their eyes are opened. And then it says he sternly warned them. Okay. And the ESV says he, uh, he sternly warned them as well. Same, same language. Saying, see that no one knows it. 
But verse 31 says, but when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. What? What? (laughs) You just said, Lord, you just said, yes, Lord, Lord, master. Like, don't you, he said, stern, no, don't do this. And like, you just go on and just, you know, you tell everybody about this. What's up with this, right? What's going on here? Well, I think this is, um, this is something that it's easy to, to look down at these blind people for, but I am sure, I am like 99% sure if we were to talk to them at the time, they'd be thinking, well, if we go tell people, this is just going to increase Jesus's fame. He's going to be more widely known. More people can get healed. More people like us who were blind, right? They, I'm sure they did this thinking like good things, right? Natural, like that's common sense, right? They trusted their own intuition, their own sense of right and wrong, more so than Jesus's direct words, okay? Now, this is something, it's very, very easy for us to look down at them for this. But I will say, this is something that each of us, if we are honest, can say that we have done. We, we talked Friday night about this, the principles of healthy community. One of the principles that I mentioned was, was uh, this threefold cord of, of confession, admonition, and encouragement. And how many times have you thought like, oh, I see something in someone. I should probably say, but you know what? I don't really need to. It'll be okay. It's going to take care of itself. Like, it's going to be fine. And you hear Jesus's words in the back of your mind thinking like, hey, if you have some problem with it, go talk to that person, Matthew 18, right? Or somebody has something against you, go set up. You hear that, but, but oh, I know better. It's going to be fine. This is going to be better for Jesus's honor in the long term. Like, no problem, right? Have we not all done this? Now, why does Jesus say this? Jesus says this, and I'll jump forward here in the account, because in verse 28, we'll come back to the, the third healing in a sec, but in, the third, in, the, in verse 28, after the third healing, the Pharisee said he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Jesus doesn't want this outed because whenever it's outed, these big crowds come up and opposition arises. And Jesus wants to have three unfettered good years of preaching the kingdom to people who want to hear it, who are ready to hear it, where he can do. He knows he's got a limited amount of time here. And as this just goes out and all the rumors and all the fanfare spreads, opposition spreads too. And these blind people who have the best of intentions, they actually are undermining Jesus's work, right? That's the tragedy in it. And they trust too much in their own sense of right and wrong here, rather than really believe what Jesus sternly told them to do. Okay. So Jesus, yeah, would, would rather move without fanfare. Crowds and hype bring problems. And so now we go to the final miracle. Verse 32, as they went out, behold, they brought to him a man mute and demon possessed. Okay, so the word here for mute, a lot of you know this, uh, kofos is, is a word that means, it means both deaf and mute at the same time. So, so they, they didn't really separate the two. And of course, that makes sense because deafness and muteness usually go together uh, uh, in, in, all, in all times. So they, they bring this man to Jesus who's a deaf mute. He can't hear, he can't speak. 
and he's demon possessed. So he's got he's got a double problem here. So notice again what it says. They brought to him. They brought to him in verse 32. Okay, this is yet another example of intercessory faith. This is yet another example of where the faith of others is what triggers Jesus to actually heal the person that they're concerned about. And in fact, in each of the triads contains one example of intercessory faith. So the centurion servant, remember, he was lying back sick at home in the centurion's house. And the centurion comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, I know you can heal this person. You don't even have to come to my house. You can say the word. Here, the healing of the paralytic. He saw their faith. Remember, they're willing to dig a hole in the ceiling and lower the person down. Intercessory faith. And then again, in this final story here, we again see intercessory faith in each of the triads. And so again, what a beautiful picture this is of intercession and of the power of bringing people to Jesus through the faith that they may not even necessarily have. Okay, I'm going to give two final points here uh, that sort of looking back at the whole account that will be our our final two application points and then we'll summarize and then we'll conclude. So my third point is that the answer to our problems is supernatural and not mechanical. The answer to our problems is supernatural and not mechanical. Okay, so in each of these stories, it's, it's obvious that they need a miracle. Okay, so somebody who's dead isn't just going to come back to life. Somebody who's blind isn't just going to start seeing again. And I, I've often marveled at this, that when, when there's physical problems, people will send out like prayer letters and they'll fast. Oh, such and such is in the hospital and they have cancer or this and that. You know, like people just, they, they get rallied over that because we know that once it crosses this line, just mechanical solutions don't work anymore, Right. Because there's a certain sense of helplessness that you feel. Nobody's going to say to the blind man, oh, just think happy thoughts and you're going to see, right? That, that's, not, that's not the way that people, people approach blindness or like, oh, just um, you know, do X, Y, and Z. They, they realize that this is way beyond the realm of, of where mechanical man-made solutions work anymore. Now, I'll say discipleship can be an area that can become mechanical. It can become an area where it becomes this like, oh, I just do this and then this happens. I do this and I do this happens. And it becomes an area that is devoid of God's grace and of God's activity. And I think we have to be cautious because our circles can tend towards a moralism that, that lacks the, that supernatural uh, appeal and that that desperation that these these individuals have in these stories. I, I had mentioned before that this this side here is intended to be a reflection, uh, an embodiment of everything on this side. And in the Sermon on the Mount, it opens up with, of course, blessed, 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 blessed. Right? Very supernatural words. Right. Uh, for God to bless is an incredible, incredible activity. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount is about prayer, 
and about the Father rewarding those who come to him. <clears throat> and then in the, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount is that ask, seek, knock section, and this confidence that Jesus says, of like, do you, if you understood your Heavenly Father, you would, you would understand the power of prayer. And I read this quote back when I did the Sermon on the Mount series uh, about those three uh, places in the Sermon on the Mount where the author says, like three deep springs beside a trail, these three texts renew those who walk the high mountain of the sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is not moralism. It is not self-improvement. Uh, it is something that is intended to be deeply, deeply an, an arena of supernatural appeal. Okay. All right. My, my fourth and final point here is relentless determination in prayer brings supernatural healing. Relentless determination in prayer brings supernatural healing. We see this with the, the blind men, especially, you know, that these, these poor blind men who can't see have to follow Jesus, likely a long distance to go from wherever Jairus's house was to Jesus's house in Capernaum. And we often have this wrong view of prayer, which is the, the genie in the bottle view of prayer, right? The genie in the bottle view is like, okay, my rub my lamp and then some genie, some genie emerges and okay, now I, what are my wishes? And you say that, right? Wrong. Or the fireworks view. It's like, boom, there's this moment. And we, we launch this firework of, of prayer out and phew, we get this beautiful splash of light and it's answered there. Instead, a way better view of prayer is the persistent view of prayer, which is more like chopping a tree. It's like chopping a tree down, right? And for those who use the Core Discipleship Journal, I'm often struck by, as we do the circles in that, like, it's not easy Try filling up those, those circles, right? It is not easy. We think we pray a lot, and then you realize, ah, actually, I don't. And the author that inspired that, that uh, section, Mark Batterson, says, what matters most in your Christian prayer life is not your IQ, your intelligence, or your EQ, your emotional intelligence. It's your PQ, your persistence quotient. It's so true. If your prayer has not yet been answered, how do you say it? It's because you first have to go through the stage of having a humbling grace applied to you before you can have that overcoming grace. A humbling grace needs to precede the overcoming grace. And I hope it's obvious from this account that these individuals in, in the story here, this, this triad here, are people who showed persistence and a willingness to press in through difficulties into Jesus. Basically, everybody from the early church until today has viewed this section as, as an amplification of Jesus' section on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, from the early church on, and if you want later on, I'll, I'll tell you as well some other really interesting types from Origen and others that they believe this is just loaded with these teachings here. They all knew, every single one of these individuals knew that the answer, the answer to their problems was getting into Jesus' presence. They just knew that. They were determined. They were, they were not going to give up until they got into Jesus' presence. Okay? And I'm going to jump forward in Matthew here to read a very well-known passage that is intended to be in some ways answering these questions from another perspective. So it's Matthew 18. 
Famous section here, uh, verses 19 to 20. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So if you want Jesus' presence, right? There's a, (laughs) very clear, where two or three are gathered together in my name. And the context here is obviously prayer, right? It says two or three agree concerning anything it will be done for them by my father in heaven where two or three are gathered together in my name. I am there in the midst of them. This historically has been regarded as a passage on corporate prayer. Um, People who are desperate to seek God, to seek Jesus in corporate prayer. And I'm going to dare you now to do this, to ask the people who know you best. How would you say your commitment to corporate prayer has been? Are you a person who, who leads out of that? Are you desperate for it? Are you just passionate for it? Or does it fall by the wayside? That's eh, a nice thing to do, but eh, just don't have time for that. Uh, I am, I am uh, eternally grateful to my, especially my father for this. Occasionally my, my parents watch my sermons, so if you're watching, thanks dad. Uh, because my dad drilled this into me when we were young. He, we, our practice was, we would almost every week it felt like, we would go over to people's houses and we'd say, we're going to have a prayer meeting. And we'd go from one person, let's have a prayer meeting. And we'd always, my brother and I would always be going all over LA, having prayer meetings in different people's houses. And, and it became kind of just common for what our life was. We would just, yeah, we'd call up, hey, can we have a prayer meeting house? And we'd drive over and have a prayer meeting there. And my dad drilled this into me when I was young, that both of my brother and, and me, that if you want any measure of supernatural success in your life, you need corporate prayer. You need to put into practice Matthew 8 and 9 into your life there. Uh, I, I remember traveling with him once in India. We were going all up and down south and north India. He was speaking at a bunch of places. And the, the Bible college that he started there has had massive success. And again and again, people would ask him, okay, what's the, if you had to give me one secret, one secret, what is it? And he would always say, he would say in one line, you always say it's corporate prayer because it's, we're involved in supernatural warfare. He would say that again and again and again. Corporate prayer because we're in supernatural warfare. I guarantee you the deepest problems that you have right now, guarantee you, are supernatural warfare that cannot be uh, resolved through anything except corporate prayer. I guarantee you. You got to press in to Jesus physically, heartily, like each of the people in this story here. I'm going to leave you here as we close with a quote from Dale Bruner, who, who I think wisely surveys the 10 miracles here and says, we are asked, as we saw, to ourselves be the 11th miracle, modern deaf mutes who are so freed by Jesus that we can finally talk again. And the best form of talk is prayer. Let us pray. Father, we come before you here um, humbled as we look at these, these men and women who, who pressed in, who were so determined to be in Jesus' presence, willing to make holes in walls, to, to bear shame, to, to bear ridicule, to walk long distances despite being blind, because they knew that in Jesus' presence there is, there is the miraculous, there is resolution and as Jesus told us so clearly in Matthew 18, that Jesus is present wherever two or three are gathered in his name. I pray that we would redouble our commitment to corporate prayer here at Followers of the Way, knowing that 
the answer to our greatest need is found in Jesus' presence. Forgive us, Father, for moralism and for uh, a deadness in human effort and help us to, to see that just like blindness or deafness or deadness is unresolvable by any human uh, stratagem or effort, uh, we, we, need, we need you, we need your grace. So I pray that we would, we would do that uh, with faithfulness, with joy, with perseverance. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.